Strasvici. Hello and welcome to City Breaks St Petersburg episode 8, which I'm giving the rather curious title of From Fabergé to Rasputin. Two things very connected with the city today, the things of interest to most people who visit, and both connected to the last of the Romanovs, Nicholas and Alexandra and family. So it seems quite nice to deal with them both in one episode. And we're going to focus on two palaces, two more of the fabulous inner city palaces that you can visit in St. Petersburg if you're there for long enough. The Shuvalov Palace on the Fontanka, which is now the home of the Fabergé Museum, and the Yusupov Palace, which is the place best known perhaps today as the site of the murder of one Grigory Rasputin. So that's the plan. Okay, so the Shuvalov Palace has one of the fanciest addresses in St. Petersburg, 21 Fontanka River Embankment, and its own guidebook describes it as, quote, one of the pearls in the spectacular necklace of St. Petersburg palaces. It was built at the end of the 18th century and owned from 1800 onwards by one Maria Antonovna Narishkina and her husband. They were art lovers, so they filled it with paintings and sculptures and antiques, and it soon became really a sort of social hub for the very most aristocratic of St. Petersburg society. There were visits, for example, from Tsar Alexander. It became a place where writers and artists were made very welcome. We know, for example, that Alexander Pushkin came to visit. In 1834, a ball was held to celebrate the coming of age of Alexander Nikolaevich, so the Alexander who was going to become Alexander II. So that's how important it was in the social arrangements of the city. In the 1840s, it became known as the Shuvalov Palace because the daughter of the Narishkins married one Pyotr Pavlovich Shuvalov and the palace ever after then was named after him. And that's the date, roughly the 1840s, when the thing that perhaps you'll notice first and will remember ever afterwards if you visit was built, namely the grand staircase central to the building, a glittering, shimmering edifice of marble and gold. As with so many St. Petersburg buildings, 1914 was a key year. What was to happen to it then? What actually happened was that its last owner, one Elizaveta Vladimirovna Shuvalova, gave it over to the authorities to be used as a hospital for the war wounded and a place to be used as living quarters for army officers. 1918, of course, another very key year. Far from being handed back to its owners after the war, the palace was nationalised, the Soviets took it over. A lot of the artworks had been hidden, so they were saved, in fact. And during the 1920s, it rejoiced in the title of A Museum of Noble Life. And then after that, it became a place for engineering and architecture firms to be based. So a very prosaic uses. It was badly damaged in World War II, took several direct hits. But during the 1950s, they began to restore it and reopened it as something called the Home of Peace and Friendship. It wasn't very well looked after, fell into gentle decline. But in 2006, people got a grip. A new restoration was started and the whole building was turned into an art museum. And the most famous things that were going to be stored there were the Fabergé works. So not just the nine imperial Easter eggs, which you can see there today, but many, many other things made also by the Fabergé company and also by other companies operating alongside Fabergé, particularly in the 19th century. So that's the palace, the Fabergé company itself, a brief history of that. In 1842, one Gustav Fabergé moved to St. Petersburg. He'd been living in what we would today call Estonia, came to the city 
attracted, I suppose, by the whole imperial thing, and opened a gold and diamond workshop. He was obviously thinking ahead because he sent his son Carl on a grand tour of Europe, sent him off to Paris and Florence to see fine art and beautiful jewellery and learn from everybody else. And sure enough, when Carl came home, he took over the company eventually in about the 1870s. And from then on, it really began to thrive. It found much favour with the emperor and his families, became known, for example, as a supplier of the imperial court, and a bit later got a new title, namely appraiser to the cabinet of his imperial majesty. Here's an extract from the guidebook to the museum, which is describing the history of the company. Quote, the last two decades of the 19th century were a time of international recognition for the House of Fabergé. This was when many people outside Russia became aware of Karl Fabergé's talent. It was generally admitted at the time that gold and silver works and jewellery, all of which Fabergé so aptly represented abroad, were those branches of the art industry in which the Russians knew no equal in Europe. It goes on to describe how they opened new branches in Moscow and Odessa and Kiev and finally in 1903 in London. But the flagship jewellery store remained the one in the company's hometown of St. Petersburg. And they described the building as follows. The building on Bolshea Moskaya Street included studios for designers and sculptors, a unique specialised art library, the fashionable apartment of Karl Fabergé himself, designed and decorated in his own taste, and the main jewellery studios, whose activities the maître could supervise personally. The best Petersburg jewellers fulfilled customer orders, and these masters included Mikhail Perkin, in the studio of whom the imperial Easter eggs were created. Again, World War I and the revolution caused problems. Master craftsmen were taken for military service, so the company went into decline, and in 1917 came, of course, the end. There was no more requirement for such luxurious items. Their customer base, all the rich aristocrats of St. Petersburg, mainly fled abroad. The imperial family, of course, were murdered, and Karl Fabergé himself fled. He left Russia by pretending to be a British embassy courier and made it to Switzerland, where he died about two years later. So, the museum, if you go to visit. On your way to see the eggs, which is probably where you're really heading, the first thing you'll notice, as I've already mentioned, I'm sure, is the Grand Staircase, which was originally built in the 1840s. Think marble columns, think gilt, think wrought iron railings, think spectacular cupola, and you've got some idea. There are about ten super fancily decorated rooms in the building, with titles like the Knight's Room, and lots of understated sort of titles, the Red Room and the Blue Room, and my personal favourite, the Beige Room. But actually, if you wander through them, you'll notice, of course, that they are sumptuously decorated throughout. It functions as a museum these days, mainly of artworks. It's got about 4,000 works, fine arts, but also decorative applied arts, many made by the Fabergé Company, others by other contemporary firms of theirs, such as the famous Russian silversmith Zazikov. What can you find? Well, there's lots of military memorabilia. There's a whole room given over to that, the Knight's Room. So you can see drinking horns and vases with pictures of battle scenes on them. A gold cigarette case made for use on board a naval cruiser in 1910. And dozens and dozens, well, hundreds of other things. In the gold room, you can see a whole array of gifts that were commissioned mainly by the imperial family, presented to diplomats and whatnot. So things, for example, like a presentational snuff box with a portrait of himself on it, 
which Nicholas II gave in 1902 to the French Minister of Foreign Affairs, presumably he was visiting and Nicholas wanted him to remember his time in St. Petersburg. There's an absolute stash of other things, jewellery, porcelain, fancy clocks, and lots of things that were given as diplomatic gifts or perhaps commissioned by high-status visitors to St. Petersburg. So things like a punch set or a writing set or an enamel letter rack, often with little paintings of, say, the emperor and his family on them. But the thing you've surely come to see are the eggs. So for that, you need to seek out the blue room in which you will find, all in separate display cases, no fewer than 14 Fabergé eggs, including nine of the famous imperial Easter eggs, which the emperors Alexander III and Nicholas II commissioned as Easter presents. I think there were about 50 in total. Um, They gave them mainly to their wives or to their mothers. And in there, you can see the very first Easter egg of the collection, known as the hen egg, given at Easter 1885, and the one which really started the tradition where a new egg was designed every year. Talks would begin just after Easter, the whole thing would take the full year in consultation with the Tsar, and it would be personally delivered to him by Carl Fabergé himself at the beginning of Holy Week, so he could pass it on to the lucky recipient. So the hen egg was ordered by Alexander III as a gift for his wife. Tsarina Maria Fyodorovna. He'd been round the Fabergé works, he'd been very impressed at something called the All-Russian Art and Industrial Exhibition, which was actually in Moscow, and he decided that they could do something for him. So this first egg was designed with three parts, and it started the tradition that there would always be a surprise inside. This one was actually an actual egg, or rather a depiction of, with a white enamel shell, and a polished gold yolk inside, which opens up to reveal a little hen made of something called mosaic gold, so different colours of gold forming all the different feathers. And inside that, there was a pendant in the shape of a miniature imperial crown. So think kinder egg, really. Open up and you keep finding new things inside, ever smaller treats. It was very well received, although apparently Tsar Alexander hadn't been sure that it would be. The guidebook tells us that, quote, the Tsar was nervous about whether or not the surprise would please its future owner. But the Empress liked the egg so much that Fabergé was made a court supplier, and from that year on, an imperial egg was ordered every year for the next 32 years. One of the other nine eggs in the collection is also one that Alexander chose for Maria Fyodorovna, this one from Easter 1894 which was particularly poignant because that was the year that he died. In October that year, he died. And then, of course, she kept it as the last present or the last Easter present that he'd given her. And that one was a Renaissance Easter egg jewellery box cut from agate with a golden lattice framework interspersed with diamonds and rubies. So beautiful. Although it was the last Easter egg she received from her husband, it wasn't the last one overall that she received because her son... Tsar Nicholas II also used to have eggs made for her at Easter. So you can see, for example, one that he gave her in 1900, known as the Easter egg clock, a gold diamond and pearl number, out of which springs a surprise golden cockerel, which actually crows and actually flaps its wings and then disappears. Some of the other eggs are ones which Nicholas bought for his own wife, Alexandra. So, for example, the one from 1898, the Lilies of the Valley Easter egg, 
In fact, that one I find is rather poignant when you see it because it manages to combine being a completely over-the-top fancy piece of jewellery with being a rather sweet family memento given by Nicholas to his wife at the time when two of their four daughters had been born and they're included in the gift. So I'll read you the description of that from the museum's guidebook. The Lilies of the Valley Easter egg is made in an Art Nouveau style, decorated with pearls, diamonds and the favourite flowers of Alexandra Fyodorovna, Lilies of the Valley, symbolising purity. The eggshell is covered in transparent rose enamel on a guilloche background, decorated with stripes of diamonds, and is braided with Lilies of the Valley at the bottom on golden stems with enamel leaves and pearl flowers. The egg's surprise is miniature portraits of the Emperor and his two older daughters. These medallions, painted with watercolours on ivory, are held at the top of the egg on metal stems. The portraits appear from inside the egg upon turning the pearl pin. When closed, the aperture is hidden by a miniature copy of the imperial crown, covered with diamonds. I bet she loved it. I think perhaps the one that I found most amazing was the one called the Coronation Easter Egg, which has a hinged golden egg that opens up to reveal an exact copy of the coronation carriage, made of course to mark the occasion, when the year when Nicholas was crowned emperor. It's an actual moving model with wheels that turn and everything, golden double-headed eagles, little miniature coronation crown decorating it. Everything that was on the real coach is actually there on this one. Two of the later eggs I found also very poignant reminders of the family. So there's the 15th anniversary gift, which was a present from Nicholas to his wife in 1911, which has a golden shell and 18 little enamel panels, each one with a tiny painting on it. So there's one of Nicholas, one of Alexandra, one each of the five children, and then other scenes of key events from his reign. And of course, when you look at it, you can't help but remember that it was given as a gift only just a very few years before the whole family met their deaths in such a horrible way. And then finally, there was an egg given in 1916 called the Order of St George Easter Egg, which Nicholas had designed for his mother, the Dowager Empress. It's much more modest in design because the best craftsman of the company had been called to the front. And it was made to mark the fact that both Nicholas and the, his son, the Tsarevich Alexei, were awarded the Order of St George, and it opens up to reveal miniature portraits of both of them. This, of course, only a year before they were taken hostage. It was the only egg that Maria Fyodorovna took with her when she managed to flee Russia in 1919, and it's known that she kept it with her all the way up until her death in 1928. So again, it really seems to represent the end of an era. In fact, I think that's the feeling you leave the whole palace with, that you really have been witnessing the splendour, the opulence, the luxury of an era that came to a crashing end. And then the other palace, which is in a very different way a reminder of the same thing, is the Yusupov Palace, built in the 1760s, known today principally as the place where Grigory Rasputin was murdered. But before any of that, it was a palace built by a family, the Yusupovs, to house their art collection. The Lonely Planet Guide, for example, describes it as having, quote, some of the best 19th century interiors in the city. And again, it really does reek of the splendour of previous eras. We know that the last owner, one Prince Felix Yusupov, had been the richest man in the whole of Russia, but we know that their predecessors also didn't lack money. And that accounts for some of the things that you'll see if you decide to go round the palace. 
There is, for example, a 180-seater Rococo Family Theatre, still used today, actually, for concerts. If you play your cards right, you might even be able to get tickets for one. There's a ballroom, there's a banquet hall, there's a Turkish study and a Moorish drawing room. That's the one that attracts the most attention from visitors, actually. It's a glorious Islamic-style tiled room with fountains and Islamic art all around, thought to have been built possibly to reflect the family's Tatar heritage, or maybe just because Islamic art was in vogue in the days when it was created. But anyway, all of that aside, the main reason why most English-speaking visitors, at least, go there is because of its connection with the murder of Rasputin and the fact that down in the basement there is an exhibition dedicated to that event. You have to pay separately to go in, I think, and they're not very good on English signage, but if you know the story before you go, I think you could make a reasonable amount of it. So then, Rasputin, who actually was he? Well, one good way to answer that question is to read a book called Rasputin, written by Frances Welsh, and I'd like to open this section with a quote from that book, where she tells us a little bit about what he actually looked like. So this is what she writes, quote, At the age of 47, Rasputin's appearance was not good. His close-set eyes were ringed with yellow excrescences. The irises, said to be so dazzling that their colour couldn't be determined, grey, blue, or even blue and brown, were dulled. His broad nose was pockmarked, his lips blue, and his moustaches protruding like worn-out brushes. Following years of use as a napkin, his straggling beard was festooned with decaying food. It's worth keeping that picture in mind when you hear how popular he was with the otherwise extremely fastidious Empress Alexandra. Rasputin didn't come from St. Petersburg, he hailed from very far away, but in his village he had already been said to have mystical gifts. It was said, for example, that the family cows produced more milk if he was nearby, and people said that he was able to predict when a stranger was on the way, and an hour after he'd made an announcement that someone was coming, a traveller would appear in the distance, so people thought that he really had supernatural powers. At the same time, he was known to be hopeless with money, always on the breadline, selling, in fact, sometimes the family bread to get money to buy alcohol. And the one thing that people did seem to always notice about him was this thing about his eyes, so Francis Welch describes it as follows, quote, It was widely acknowledged that the man of God's eyes were mesmeric and that he could expand and contract his pupils at will. When he arrived in St. Petersburg, he seemed to manage to keep going this idea that he had mystical powers. There was a report in a newspaper, for example, to say that he was able to, quote, blow into a handful of earth and turn it into a magnificent rose tree. And the talk was that he could restore sight to the blind and make the paralysed walk again. His friend Iliodor once wrote that he, quote, visits bathing establishments and brings holy word to those who bathe. They are morally cleansed. So before long, he starts having a connection with the empress and the emperor, we know, for example, from Francis Welch's book that he had tea with Nicholas and Alexandra on November the 1st, 1905. It was held out at Peterhof on a sunny afternoon and we're told that, quote, Brother Grigory was immediately relaxed, addressing the imperial couple as Batushka and Matushka, little father and little mother. He would soon refer to them even more simply as Papa and Mama. The Tsar made a characteristically unforthcoming entry in his diary. Quote, we had tea with Militza and Stana. That was his name for the fourth daughter, Anastasia. We met the man of God, Grigory, from the province of Tobol. 
She goes on to tell us that he quickly followed up the connection and invited himself to tea a second time. He apparently wrote to the Tsar saying the reason for his second visit was that he wanted to bring them a particular icon of, quote, the righteous St. Simon. In fact, when he arrived, he brought icons for everybody, including all five of the children, and a piece of consecrated bread. About that meeting, the Tsar wrote in his diary that he, quote, made a strong impression on Her Majesty and me. Our conversation lasted well over an hour. Francis Welsh then goes on to explain how it was that he managed to persuade particularly Alexandra that he would be able to help with the terrible problem of Alexis' haemophilia. So she writes, for example, of an occasion when, quote, Alexis was aged three when he was first healed by Rasputin. He had fallen in the grounds of the palace, had hurt his leg and face so badly that it was swollen and his eyes were closed. He'd been ill for three days before the man of God was summoned and appeared in his bedroom. After several minutes of silent prayer, the boy smiled and his mother cried with joy. She recounts other instances, for example this one, quote, On another occasion, it was said, Rasputin was talking to the Tsarina about Providence when he suddenly interrupted himself, shouting, He's in the blue room. The pair ran to the blue billiard room to find Alexis standing on the table. Rasputin scooped the boy up seconds before the table was hit by a huge falling chandelier. Of such stuff are legends created. We know that Rasputin's visits became very common. We also know that the imperial family often didn't particularly tell everybody that he was coming. The meetings were often held in private. We know that Rasputin started to abuse his friendship with them. So there was an incident, for example, at the Kazan Cathedral where Rasputin arrived to a formal and imperial occasion that, that he had really no reason to be at. He dressed up for the occasion in a dark raspberry silk peasant shirt and sat there and sat there and eventually had to be turfed out from the seat that he'd chosen for himself, which had been reserved for members of the Duma. The Duma president himself, President Rodichanko, threw him out. Apparently he was a huge man that you didn't argue with, but Rasputin wasn't bothered. As he was forcibly removed, heard to be shouting, Lord, forgive him such sin. These sort of incidents kept going, and eventually lots of people, including people quite close to the, the imperial family, were, were horrified at what was going on and all seemed to be united in the idea that really Rasputin was doing nobody any good at all. The Tsar's sister, for example, Grand Duchess Xenia, wrote in a letter that Rasputin was all over the place. How will it all end? One of Alexandra's friends, the mother, in fact, of Felix Yusupov, went to the palace to beg Alexandra to give up on Rasputin and was apparently sent out with the words, I hope we never meet again. The Tsarina was willing to abandon her friends if they'd spoke against Rasputin. The Dowager Empress herself was against him, writing, for example, she, meaning her daughter-in-law, is bringing about her own downfall and that of the dynasty. She deeply believes in that dubious individual. But Nicholas and Alexandra continued to call him our friend, to invite him to the palace and to take note of what he said. There's some evidence that Nicholas perhaps believed some of the warnings he was given, but that he used to wring his hands and say, there's nothing I can do, because he knew that for his wife, the hope that Rasputin might be able to heal their son was just too great and she just couldn't give up on him. But at the same time, we know that some of Rasputin's other behaviour was certainly what you might call less than impressive. So we have, for example, a British diplomat, one Robert Bruce Lockyer, writing the following. As we watched the music hall performances in the main hall, there was a violent fracas in one of the private rooms, wild shrieks of a woman. 
a man's curses, broken glass and the banging of doors. This turned out to be Rasputin, who was drunk and quite lecherous, making such a nuisance of himself that eventually the police had to be called and he was taken away at two o'clock in the morning. The ordinary people as well began to fear that the connection between Rasputin and the imperial family was a bad thing. In 1915, in Moscow, there were riots calling for the Tsar's abdication and saying that Alexander should be sent to a convent and Rasputin should be hanged. There were all sorts of terrible rumours that he'd slept with the Tsarina, for example, that the Tsar used to take off Rasputin's boots for him and wash his feet. Even schoolchildren joined in, making up lewd songs about his antics. And when challenged, Rasputin actually sometimes used to say something which I think is very revealing. Accused of all sorts of terrible things, he would reply that, quote, nobody fouls where they eat. So almost a recognition that he was getting a lot out of his connection with the imperial family, and so for that reason alone, he would behave himself when he was with them, even though there seemed to be much evidence to the contrary. The culmination of all of this and the reaction to the total obstinacy of particularly the Empress refusing to listen to any bad word about her friend was that some of the aristocracy decided to take matters into their own hands and, in fact, not to mess about but simply to have him murdered. In fact, in the end, they decided they would do it themselves. So they came up with a plan, which was they would invite him to the Yusupov Palace for an evening of cards and music and that they would provide refreshments, and that they would sprinkle cyanide into the wine glasses, which would poison him, and that would solve the problem. We actually have something written by Prince Yusupov himself, telling how he felt on the evening, in which he said that, The prospect of inviting a man to my house with the intention of killing him horrified me. I could not contemplate without a shudder the part which I would be called upon to play, that of a host encompassing the death of his guest but he did manage to overcome his own objections and put the plan into action. So he went out to fetch Rasputin, brought him back to the house, where we know that he ate cakes and drank from the poisoned glasses and continued to listen to the music and that not much else happened at all. And eventually, when they got fed up of waiting, it was decided by Prince Yusupov and his two accomplices that they would have to take matters into their own hands and just shoot Rasputin, which they duly did. But a few minutes later, going to check on the body, they were horrified to see that he was still moving and was, in fact, still alive. Yusupov describes the feeling he had of looking at him as follows, quote, It seemed that the devil himself, incarnate in this muzik, which means peasant, was holding me in vice-like fingers, never to let me go. Mayhem ensued, Rasputin got up and tried to run away. People were heard shouting, he's alive, he's getting away. And Rasputin apparently remonstrated with the man who tried to kill him by shouting, Felix, Felix, I will tell the Tsarina everything. So much noise was made that in fact somebody else called the police and they had to think quickly. So they went down to the yard where they shot a dog in the snowy courtyard so that they could leave some excuse as to where all the blood had come from. And they dragged Rasputin out into a coach and drove him down to the Petrovsky Bridge, their intention being to throw him over into the icy waters and have him drown. This, in fact, is what happened, and so the news came out the following day that Rasputin really was dead. The children's tutor, Pierre Gilliard, wrote in his account that Alexandra was horrified and that, quote, her agonised features betrayed how terribly she was suffering. They had killed the only person who could save her child. Her older daughter, Olga, 
wrote that, quote, I know he did much harm, but why did they have to treat him so cruelly? It does seem to be a feature of the story that whatever anybody else thought of Rasputin, he really did manage to make the family, particularly the mother and the daughters at least, feel really fond of him. An extract from the Tsar's diary about the funeral itself reads like this. At nine o'clock we went to the field, where we were present at a sad scene, the coffin with the body of the unforgettable Grigory, killed on the night of the 17th by monsters in the Yusupov palace. The family went into deep mourning. That Christmas, for example, there were no presents for anybody, and the Tsarina was reported to have wept for hours. The Tsar's reaction was that he exiled Yusupov and the other accomplices, saying that, quote, no one has the right to commit murder. And this relationship, which seemed to make no sense to anybody else really, is summarised at the end of Frances Welch's book on Rasputin, when she describes how the Rasputin connection was evident even a hundred years later when the bodies of the long-dead imperial family were found. This is what she writes. When the imperial family's assassins stripped their victims, they found amulets around the necks of the Tsarina and the four young grand duchesses, containing miniature portraits of Rasputin. After Rasputin's death, the Tsarina had dreamt that Brother Grigory was looking down from heaven, blessing Russia. He died for us, she insisted. On December the 21st, 1916, she had written him a farewell letter. My dear Martyr, give me thy blessing, that it may follow me always on the sad and dreary path I have to follow here below. And remember us from on high, with your holy prayers. Alexandra. The letter was buried with him, along with a small bouquet of flowers. It was placed on his chest alongside the icon the Tsarina had sent him on that snowy afternoon of his final day on earth. So there you have it, an episode on two very different connections made by the Romanov family. The splendour and luxury of their connection with the Fabergé company and the much more difficult to understand, bewildering tale of their affection for the religious martyr stroke conman, take your pick depending on your point of view, that was Grigory Rasputin. OK, so the next episode then is a good time, I think, to move on to the revolutions which beset Russia, not just in 1917, which of course is how the story ended, but before that, certainly during the 19th century and actually earlier still, the story of the tension between the excess and splendour of the wealthy and powerful in Russia versus the harsh lives and the deprivation suffered by the ordinary people goes much further back than 1917. I really think you can't understand St Petersburg without knowing some of that story and I'm going to try and convey the grand arc of it in the next episode. I can't promise you all the detail. I advise that perhaps proper historians avert their ears but I'm going to do my best to explain how it is that all of this came crashing down in 1917. So I hope you'll join me for that. And meanwhile, I'd just like to thank you very much for listening this week. Spasibo. And to look forward to your company again in a week's time. And sign off in Russian, of course, with that lovely word for goodbye. Dosvidanya.